0: My name is Forrest Coleman. I'm a postdoc in Stephen Smith's lab of the Molecular and Cellular Physiology Department here at Stanford, and welcome to Neurotalk, the interview series for Stanford University's weekly neuroscience seminar brought to you by Neurite West. This week's guest is Dr. Gray Davis, a professor of neuroscience at the University of California at San Francisco. Thank you for joining us today, Professor Davis. Thank you. It's great to be here. So can you take us back to your childhood and tell us a little bit about how you got interested in science in the first place?
1: Yeah, it took a long time for me to actually gain any real interest in science. For a long time, I was very interested in literature and went to college thinking that I was going to dress in black clothes and smoke clove cigarettes and be very intellectual and quickly found out that I wasn't quite cut out for that.
0: What was your principal weakness?
1: My principal weakness, I I think it was having to read Dante's Inferno, and I quickly fled the English department at that time. My real first experiences, oddly enough, came at Woods Hole, where I grew up as a kid, in fact, but had very little to do with the scientific environment there. But as a biology major at Williams College, I got... Uh, Connected with Steve Zottily, who was then taking undergrads to Woods Hole for the summer, and I was lucky enough to be able to go with Steve and uh, work in his laboratory, which we shared with uh, an emeritus professor from Yale University named John Trinkus. Who, if some people may know, was an extraordinary character and also an extraordinary scientist. And uh, it was my interactions with both Steve that summer and John Trinkus that really sparked in me how wonderful a life in science could really be. And sort of got me going down the road towards uh, doing research uh, more seriously in college and then on to graduate school.
0: So Woods Hole is a place full of uh, lots of characters. Could you provide a little more detail as to the kinds of colorful things that Trinkle did? At
1: that time he was about 80 years old. He still had active r01 was still doing research in the lab every day he was really sharp as nails and enjoyed strong repartee in uh, conversations within the laboratory and he gave the sense of of all of the things that he had done over his career writing text you know some of the early textbooks in embryology on the beach in tahiti for example and various things kind of throughout his life where his take on what it meant to be a scholar and also live one's life was really very interesting
0: hmm. Well, I was going to ask you about this a little bit later, but it seems like the perfect segue. So you have obviously since you you said you grew up in Woods Hole and then you, you kind of had your first formative scientific experiences there and you've continued that connection to this day. You're currently one of the course directors for the neurobiology course at Woods Hole, which is how we met as I have been a TA there. So for those who aren't familiar with the course, could you just describe briefly what it is and who it's for?
1: Yeah, so the courses in all are generally for graduate students, postdocs, and even assistant professors. And often we're collecting postdocs and junior professors who are interested in switching careers often from physical sciences and mathematics into cellular, molecular neuroscience. Neurobiology is one course. There's another course called Neural Systems and Behavior. And the hallmark of these courses really is... Not so much the conveying didactic material, but really empowering students to pursue science in a totally unrestricted and unfettered way. The courses are built around doing research rather than doing any sort of a lab protocol. So everything we do in the neurobiology course is teaching from first principles. We teach imaging from first principles of light and optics uh, all the way through super resolution imaging and building confocal microscopes in the laboratory. But the other principle also is that everything that is done within the course is new. It really requires a group of scientists um, and their TAs who are uh, really enthusiastic and fast on their feet to come up with new projects with the students uh, in this a very intense two-week period and then test them using all the available tools and techniques that we have assembled down in Woods Hole summer. So it's an incredibly intense and very engaging experience. And it's something that never, you know, often every summer I, I Did this myself when I was a student, I felt it really transformed my career and I hear that from students every summer and it's why I keep going back and and I think it's partly transformative because it's one of those times where people collect from all over the world to come and teach in this course and it's dedicated to that particular activity for those two weeks. And so you get this pure science, this kind of synergism among investigators, endless repeated conversations that can occur between individuals that you would never get at a scientific meeting or even at your home institution where everybody's in this laboratory space together working on these things together and new collaborations and ideas emerge from it all the time. So I find it even as a faculty member incredibly enriching, but I know that students who come away from this find it really transformative. It empowers them to do a kind of science with a fearlessness um, that most of them didn't come to the course with. Yeah,
0: I mean, I I'd say from my own experience, it's amazing what is accomplished in two weeks of time. And I always leave Woods Hole sort of thinking the sky is the limit again, uh, as far as science after, you know, it's oftentimes that things fail and don't work for silly and stupid reasons. And that, of course, also happens at Woods Hole. But, it's, but some things get done in such a short period of time with such a collaboration that you kind of feel like, oh, wow, really anything can happen. Absolutely. Absolutely.
1: I mean, it's exhausting. I spent a full eight or nine weeks there in the summer to run this course. and But despite the fact that all the time I spend, I also find it recharges my battery in a similar way. It's it's
0: really great to do. Hmm. Okay. So, so you did your graduate work in Rodney Murphy's lab at the University of Massachusetts at Amherst, where you uh, looked at the role of postsynaptic retrograde signaling on presynaptic release. Could you explain what retrograde signaling is and how this process contributes to normal brain function?
1: Yeah, so it was an interesting model system. I was probably one of the last generation of people working in the cricket uh, model system, but it was a very interesting problem and one that is worth describing very briefly. And the the problem was that the crickets were, uh, at that time, a nice model for the way external information was mapped into the central nervous system. But in this case, it was wind acceleration and velocity that was being mapped. And so, there were sensory hairs, short ones detected acceleration, long velocity, and they mapped onto discrete cells in the nervous system. And the challenge was a developmental one, because as the animal grew and went through a successive series of nine molts, uh, the sensory hairs grew. And so they changed from an acceleration to a velocity detector. Hmm.
0: Could you give a, a brief intuition for someone who, you know, a non-physicist as to why a short hair would detect acceleration in a long hair velocity?
1: Essentially, the short ones are more difficult to bend. And so only a change in the acceleration of the wind would be detected, whereas the longer hairs will be flexible and, and see changes in wind velocity. Gotcha. And what was really interesting developmentally was that these sensory Neurons from a single hair had to switch their connectivity in the central nervous system from one cell that was the relay neuron for acceleration to a cell that became a velocity detector. And the neurons did that not by rearranging their anatomical connections, but rearranging the strengths of their connections in the nervous system. Mm -hmm. And we caught neurons that were simultaneously connected to two of the targets, um, and they behaved differently at each target. So one sensory neuron at an intermediate length hair connected to one target with a weak synapse that facilitated, and another target with a strong synapse that depressed. And the idea was that since this was the terminals of a single neuron, the target had to be specifying those fundamental properties in the nerve terminal. And it was important that the target do that because it allowed a single cell now to convey information through two pathways in the central nervous system. And this turns out to be a very general way that neural circuits can be organized. Similar things have been seen in hippocampal interneurons. And perhaps one of the best examples of how this can run behavior was done much earlier in the 1970s in Leach, where an individual sensory neuron contacted two motor neurons Mm -hmm. made a weak synapse that facilitated on one and a strong synapse that depressed on the other. And activation of that sensory neuron elicited two sequential behaviors, one driven by the strong synapse on one motor neuron first, and then a second driven by the weaker facilitating synapse that emerged secondarily. So a single neuron could then
0: evoke two sequential behaviors based upon the target-dependent control of the synapse. Hmm. Well, that is a really elegant and interesting example, but it's also the kind of elegant and, and beautiful story that faculty members often tell and graduate students listen to and they get kind of depressed because they listen to this beautiful story that that makes a lot of sense and then they look at what they're doing and nothing makes sense. So was your experience in the lab that straightforward? Probably the best way to segue from there is
1: into what I did as a postdoc where I, I was interested in how target cells might modify the inputs and at the time, went to Corey Goodman's lab because Corey was then working in Drosophila, and that opened up the tools of genetics to begin to dissect out mechanisms. And what I went there for was looking for these retrograde signals, particularly
0: at an accessible neuromuscular synapse where we thought we might be able to do forward genetics. I see. So, so after your grad work, you sort of understood that this effect must be there, but you didn't know what was carrying it. Exactly.
1: So I went to pursue the awesome power of genetics in Corey Goodman's lab, and Many of the first experiments we did, we were using the molecular tools available to manipulate connections between the motor neurons and muscle cells, and we could create muscle cells that were super innervated, and we could create muscle cells that were hypo-innervated with fewer nerve terminals. And to my great disappointment at the time, nothing really changed physiologically. And that was one of those moments where nothing seemed to make sense until we began to look at the processes by which the cells maintained constant function. And, you know, over the course of a couple of years of doing these kinds of experiments, what emerged from it all was this much bigger idea, I think, that's really kind of a paradigm shift in the neurosciences from trying to characterize how change occurs to try to understand how stability is achieved despite the fact that there is a lot of change ongoing in the nervous system. It's also what I'll be talking about in my seminars, really a set of experiments that launched what we've been doing for the past almost 20 years now, which is trying to understand how the nervous system remains stable throughout the life of an organism. But it began by creating perturbations and discovering that the system compensated very effectively for all of the perturbations we threw at it mm.
0: and maintained constant functionality. So as you described it, you went and did these experiments, manipulating innervation. you really expected to see something different, and you weren't seeing any effect. And you must have initially thought that you had messed up or something. And then was there a, a moment or a set of conversations with you or your advisor or the... Where you were like, well, actually, the fact that it isn't changing is interesting.
1: You know, in fact, what I think happened was a very interesting moment in science when all of these ideas of homeostatic control of neural function began to emerge kind of at a very similar time. So at the same time, I was doing those experiments at the neuromuscular junction that were pointing towards a stabilizing homeostatic control of presynaptic neurotransmitter release. Eve Martyr's laboratory was beginning to look at, uh, or had been looking at for a few years, intrinsic excitability and showing that neurons have this amazing capacity to control their intrinsic excitability and maintain that in a constant way, uh, despite perturbations. And simultaneously, Gina Trigiano's lab, as well as Rekuginer's lab, had shown that chronic perturbations of neural activity were inducing compensatory changes that were Modifying glutamate receptor abundance at postsynaptic targets and central neurons. And the effect there was again to stabilize the functional properties of neurons over time. And so I knew Gina and I knew Eve very well at the time. I was a grad student and often interacted with Eve at meetings on the East Coast. And so these ideas and conversations began to coalesce into a much bigger idea that the stability of neural function is sustained by diverse and fairly complex homeostatic signaling systems in the nervous
0: system. Hmm. So moving a little more recently, uh, in 2008, your lab published a paper that identified uh, a novel long isoform of this protein called Anchorin-2. And the paper explains that this long Anchorin-2 forms a complex lattice in the presynaptic terminal, which then controls the size and morphology of synaptic boutons. Could you paint a picture of what this process looks like?
1: So the Anchorin-2 is a very, in and of itself, is a very interesting molecule. It's it's a, a giant Anchorin, in fact, that may have the capacity to span significant distances from the plasma membrane of the synapse into the cell cytoplasm where it can bind and stabilize microtubules. But it's really a, a piece of a second major project in the laboratory, which is to begin to use Drosophila forward genetics to understand how anatomical integrity is maintained in the nervous system. And it relates to neurodegeneration quite clearly. And so we set about in about 2000, we began to use a new assay that we had just based on antibody staining to Randomly screened for mutations that might cause neurodegeneration. And that led us to the identification of a few genes. And remarkably, we screened three or four thousand independent mutations and wow. found only five or six mutations that actually caused neuromuscular degeneration, one of which later became a disease gene for ALS, another for a spastic neurodegenerative disease as well. So many of these genes we, we found later became implicated in in human neurodegeneration. At that point, we were also kind of stymied by the idea that if we were identifying genes like Ancrin or Spectrin that were so important for maintaining integrity, it seemed very unlikely that you were going to restore those proteins in any productive way to... Help with disease or degeneration. And so we began to take an alternative strategy and say, well, perhaps there were active processes of disassembly that were being triggered by the loss of a gene like ancrin. And maybe those things could be disrupted and actually slow degeneration. Mm. And so we began to screen for modifiers that would slow the progress of neurodegeneration that was caused by loss of ancrin or loss of spectrum. And that led a couple of years ago to a study we published in Neuron showing a signaling system, a glial derived signaling system, actually, where TNF alpha was required in the glial cell adjacent to the motor neuron, signaled to the motor neuron via the TNF-alpha receptor, and then involved both mitochondria and caspase signaling in the motor neuron to drive degeneration. The entire signaling system was pro-degenerative because if we removed any component of it, we suppressed degeneration caused by the loss of spectrum or ankyrin, And that's turned out to be a wonderful sort of set of projects in the laboratory that we're continuing to pursue. Can we find these regulators that are driving the destruction of the synapse and ultimately of the nerve cell and understand that in greater detail? One of the greatest questions there, I think, is the involvement of caspases because caspases are these proteins that are proteases that are actively chewing up many processes within the cell, but they're exquisitely well controlled and caspase-dependent signaling can, for example, prune off small regions of dendrites without killing a nerve cell. And the question is if these proteases are so potent and they are switch-like molecules that are turned on, but they don't cause, in this case, in the nervous system, cell death. So how is it controlled and how is it restricted to these developmentally reproducible kinds of elimination events?
0: Hmm. So I am fascinated by this idea. I mean, it's not something that anybody has yet seen really in live action. Whole bits being kind of chopped off. Is that right? A live imaging of this happening. Exactly. Yeah.
1: Actually, there are some wonderful live images out out there. So Jeff Lichtman published beautiful studies at the neuromuscular junction, watching competitive interactions and and retractions. And those are cases where. One terminal will pull off of one target and the cell will maintain its connections elsewhere. To watch it live, there's been some wonderful images in cell culture, but also in zebrafish, where you see in a living organism, where you can see neurons and they go through a phase where they bleb at the membrane. And then the membrane is chopped up almost simultaneously along all of its process that gets eliminated. It's a really quite remarkable process and it shares similarities with Valerian degeneration, but increasingly the molecular underpinnings show that there are both molecular commonalities, including this Wellerian degeneration slow gene, but also significant differences between disease models and these developmental pruning events.
0: Hmm. Greg, your career has mainly focused on understanding synapses at the molecular level, and you've studied a variety of proteins, each with different yet ultimately synergistic functions. So how do you think in the long term about we're going to bring all this kind of disparate molecular information together. So do you have a hypothesis, for example, about how these different proteins interact or compete with each other to drive synapse formation and function? I
1: think the best way to answer that is to sort of also provide a lead-in to what I'll be talking about in the seminar. Well, good. That's my next question is for you to give a teaser. So
0: I'll I'll combine those. (laughs) Yeah.
1: So one of the major focuses we're very interested in is how homeostatic signaling systems can control the release of neurotransmitter from the presynaptic nerve terminal. And the basic paradigm is that you can disrupt postsynaptic neurotransmitter receptors, and the presynaptic nerve terminal will adjust the release of neurotransmitter to precisely offset that postsynaptic perturbation. And what it means is that synaptic depolarization of the muscle cell is maintained correctly. And what's remarkable about this kind of thing is that it has quantitative accuracy, that the ability of the system to adjust neurotransmitter release can range from a 10% adjustment to a 200% adjustment, and it's always in correct compensation for the severity of the perturbation. So it implies a signaling system that has quantitative accuracy built into it, and that provide some very interesting constraints on what you would do with that signaling system. And so what we're doing now is twofold. We're really taking a forward genetic approach to get a parts list. Can we find all the molecules that are involved? Can we find molecules that break this homeostatic signaling system? Can we find the molecules that make it run more quickly, that make it hyper or hypo compensate? And the idea is that we will eventually assemble these things into a homeostatic signaling machine that may or may not resemble the kinds of flow diagrams used in control theory for homeostatic control of systems or uh, control systems for things like flight control or cruise control in cars. It implies the existence of sensors, the biological sensors that can sense changes in activity, that those sensors can feed through a whole signaling system, including feedback and error signals to control the way neurons are releasing neurotransmitter. And so the goal really is kind of twofold. We're going to bring, hopefully, this parts list through a process of modeling and predictions and back to experiments and looking for more parts to begin to figure out what are the design principles of a neural homeostat and how are they implemented in the
0: nervous system. I mean, it sounds remarkably similar on a philosophical level to uh, systems system circuit neuroscience, except for the the difference being you're, you're, you're looking at a molecular circuit that's got a particularly complex function rather than a, a neural circuit.
1: Yes, exactly. And I think, you know, To some extent, what we're studying is one of the more simple forms of homeostatic plasticity out there. I think other forms of homeostasis, including the homeostatic control of ion channel abundance, truly are systems biology questions of the magnitude of systems neuroscience. I mean, here we have solutions whereby neurons can adjust any number of 12 to 15 different types of ion channels and thousands of inputs onto itself, and do that in a regulated way. Modelers suggest that there may be hundreds of thousands of different solutions to the problem each neuron confronts. So, figuring out the rules and and the
0: regulatory events there seems daunting, but also incredibly interesting. Hmm. So, we like to end our interviews with a series of kind of rapid fire questions that are more fun than anything else. So, can you remember the first experiment that you ever did? Whatever pops in mind, if it's elementary school, grad school? Gosh.
1: Probably the first experiment I ever did was to... Well, it was actually a turtle heart laboratory in college where these turtle preparations had, were exposed the heart and it was beating and we were pouring on norepinephrine and noradrenaline and getting forced transduction read out on chart paper. And I thought it was the coolest thing ever as a freshman in college.
0: <laughs> so if you could go back in time and speak to yourself as a graduate student, what advice would you give yourself?
1: I think I would sort of remind myself of uh, something that I eventually came to as a student looking for postdoctoral fellowships. And at the time, I recall that the, the funding situation wasn't very good. And lots of my friends were thinking of dropping out of science. And I looked at what I was going to do as a postdoc. And I said, well, I'm going to go do a postdoc with Corey Goodman. It's a great lab. and I'm going to bust my butt for the next three years and work as hard as I can. And hopefully this works out. And if it doesn't work out, I will never look back on it and wonder if I had tried harder or done something different, whether it would have worked out better. And so, looking being able to look back without regret, I think, as a student was the best advice I ever gave myself.
0: Mm-hmm. So if you didn't go into science, if things hadn't worked out, what do you think you'd be doing? I have no idea. <laughs> <laughs> it's a fair answer.
1: Sailing around the world and being very poor.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, thank you so much for speaking with us today, Professor Davis. Thanks very much. Uh, and thank you all for listening. We hope you join us next week when our guest will be Jeffrey Isaacson, a professor of neuroscience at UC San Diego. NeuroTalk is a production of Neurite West. This episode was produced by Erica Signor and myself. For more information about NeuroTalk and Neurite West, please visit our website at www.neuroblog.stanford.edu.